0: The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today I'm very excited because we have coming with us all the way from Ireland, Jude Morrow who wrote the Amazon best-selling book, Why Does Daddy Look So Sad? And it's a tremendous journey he's had, and I'm going to let him tell you all about it. Jude, welcome to Different Brains.
1: Thank you, Haki. Good evening. How are you?
0: It's very good. So it's evening in Ireland, and it's daytime here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Yep. Tell us, what inspired you to write? Why does Daddy always look so sad?
1: Well, one day, just sitting here at home, I was looking through old notebooks, old diaries that I'd had over the years. And it's very unusual that I would keep diaries because often whenever I write my thoughts down. This was even before I wrote anything seriously. I would have destroyed them at the end. I would have burned them because they're not normally for public consumption. But somehow, some uh, diaries I'd kept and, spoiler alert, I had uh, gone through various therapies in my early adulthood and I'd kept the diaries. They'd been spared from being destroyed. And I just thought, wow, you know, all the, the homeworks and the tasks I had to do in between therapy sessions, I documented all of them and kept them. And I realised where I'd come from: being a small child who had severe communication difficulties, was almost um, excluded from school, to getting to where I am now, which is a social worker and proud dad of a six-year-old son. Whenever I looked through the the notebooks again, I thought I will put all of these in chronological order and write a story so that perhaps Ethan would know later in his life who I I am, who where I came from and who I came to be. And whenever I was in the middle of writing the book, I'd read I'd read a lot of autism literature and all of it seemed to be centered on parenting advice for people with autistic children. Now, I was one of those autistic children, and now I'm six foot four and I have a beard. <laughs> I, I, I just came to realize that there just doesn't seem to be an awful lot of information, guidance, or positive stories that are told from the perspective of adults who live with autism every day, like me. Whenever I turned 18, I realized I was out in the world of my own and I had some supports whenever I was in school that stopped whenever I reached adulthood. And at that point in my mind I thought, okay, well, having autism was something I went through as a child. I no longer have it. And I will ride off under the sunset and continue with the rest of my life. And it was only whenever Ethan was on his way that some of the traits that I thought I'd left behind in childhood decided to come back. Um, I was so dependent on structure and routine that in my mind I collapsed completely. So I just came to realize that I surely can't be the only person in this position. Surely out of the many, many diagnosed autistic children, many of them are now parents themselves or will become parents one day, that may identify with some of the issues I had whenever I was at the start of the journey to becoming a dad myself. So that's the main reason I wrote the book.
0: Well, we're so glad you did, because we need all the perspectives we can get so people don't feel like they are the Lone Ranger. Of course. Now, you came from being nonverbal? Yes. Yes. And when were you first diagnosed?
1: Well, I was first diagnosed formally whenever I was 11. I did display some developmental delays whenever I was a small child. I was quite aggressive. I had, I had very limited speech and very limited tonal ranges. So my speaking voice was shout or silence or scream or silence uh, there was there was no in between there was no recognizable tonal range throughout whenever i did the research for the book i actually asked my own doctor for some information you know about my early life and the word autism didn't really make an appearance too much later on because whenever i was at the start of the process in the middle of the 1990s Autism wasn't as widely discussed or accepted as perhaps it would be now. It's encouraging now that whenever I meet groups and speak to parents, um, there are a lot earlier diagnoses these days, which, which is quite encouraging. And going from very limited and repetitive speech to having a full vocal range is something I'm very lucky for. Uh, at one stage, I thought I worked so hard to gain the voice that I have, so I may as well use it.
0: What are some of the uh, the real, real pearls that you would have to give to parents of nonverbal youngsters?
1: I, whenever I was signing books at the start of the you know the book journey. I had been doing personalized inscriptions and one of my favorite inscriptions, it's for a small nonverbal child called Kayla. And I thought I really want to write an inscription that might give hope. And I, what I wrote on the book was, you know, for Kayla sit back and listen and one day you will sing and that may happen. You know, uh, listening is a good thing as well. And, Of course I I didn't do much of that myself. I must admit I'm not a great follower of my own advice sometimes, but you know, with patience and love and kindness and determination, we can get there eventually. And I know maybe not every child will have a success story like mine, but knowing that life is precious and there is a lot more help and support out there and nobody, nobody is alone in this journey because I read recently that maybe you have a better grasp on statistics from the other side of the Atlantic, but one in 60 children, I believe either have a confirmed diagnosis of autism or are suspected to have. So that's a lot of people that affects a lot of families. So given that, you know, there's so much out there that can help and support parents and play to their strengths. Mine was reading. I read prolifically and wrote prolifically, even as a child. And that was nurtured in me. I wasn't expected to fit in with the crowd or become like other children my age. Trying to become like other children my age was actually a lot more toxic than being myself and expressing myself the way I should have instead of what other people expected
0: me to. What was it like to be dating?
1: It was confusing, it was difficult. I thought I was so insecure and self-conscious because I knew I was different. I knew I wasn't like most other men my age. So I had to put on a bit of an act to past myself as what one would believe to be normal and over time my traits and quirks just came out and the you know the real me kind of came out and it wasn't the person that anybody I was going out with had met initially. So it, 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 it never ended well and given the fact that I've earned my speaking voice, uh, I love to Talk about myself. I love to. I love to talk. I love to share my story, and that's probably why I'm not married.
0: Uh, um, how is your son doing?
1: He's doing great. He is probably the most excited child in the history of excitement. He loves being off school. We're, um, we're currently planning adventures for the summer of holidays. Uh, we've been away. We went to Spain for a week in May, and he's he's very happy and he's enjoying the book journey nearly as much as I am because I bring him with me to sign books, and he loves signing the books and meeting new people and you know learning more about me because he doesn't have autism. He has a great level of understanding for his age. I mean, autism's not something that I feel cured from nor do I want to be cured from it. It's me, it's who I am, and I'll never apologize for it. But whenever Ethan is around, he knows whenever I would be struggling, I would still sometimes have some sensory issues, some chaotic and noisy situations can really affect me, and Ethan can notice that. So if he feels that I'm trying too hard to survive in the situation, sometimes he'll ask me if I want to go home which is, you know, a nice show of empathy from him, although sometimes that empathy can disappear whenever he's at home and uh, rearranges the order of the house that I like to keep in a particular way. So that works both ways. We're, we're, we're learning more about each other as we both grow.
0: What were the biggest challenges for you in having a positive routine as you transitioned into parenthood?
1: Whenever I was on, whenever I had classroom assistance, whenever I was in my teenage years at secondary school, knowing the order of my day, having a diary for lessons, and what I would do when I got home, and knowing exactly what was in front of me at every stage was the most important thing for me. And whenever I went to university, I kept the same routine, the same style of learning style the same, pretty much social style as well, going to certain places with certain people at certain times, and so on. And whenever I found that fatherhood was coming, I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know what was happening, what things would be like when he was born, and the words, you have to be patient, or you need to wait and see, were phrases that my brain just could not compute. And I just pretty much drove myself crazy with the unknown. I, I hadn't learned to cope with the unknown yet at that stage because I had focused my own thought processes on controlling my own routine and my own diary so much. But then whenever Ethan was coming along, that would all have to change. So everything that I'd ever learned and had ever known would have to change pretty much overnight whenever he was born. And it was difficult whenever he did eventually come.
0: What were some of the most useful tools for you to use with your autism as you transitioned into fatherhood?
1: Well, keeping I know that structure, routine and boundaries are positive for children. I am good at planning things and thinking ahead in that way, but over time and going through the therapies that I did, I just had to let go, although slowly and in stages, because I had an awful fear that Ethan perhaps could have been the same as me, uh, that he could have been autistic as well. That's a realistic fear that I did have at the time, that genetics would play a role, and. Whenever I was small, I couldn't go to parks or pretty much anywhere because if I had a meltdown or I became aggressive, it was very difficult for my mom to take me anywhere. And I knew that there was a small chance that Ethan could be like this. And I think it made me slightly overbearing in his first few years. If he played, I didn't really give him the, the space. To, to grow or spread his wings. The way I kinda of think about it was that unconsciously and without my knowing so, I kinda of kept him caged when I think it just his feathers were just too bright. And over time I had to you know, give Ethan that space and watch him grow and flourish. And seeing that was so rewarding that it was worth maybe thinking and changing how I felt about things and how I went about my daily routine.
0: Tell us about Ethan's mom.
1: Ethan's mom. Well, myself and Ethan's mom have been separated for quite some time, almost just shortly after he uh, was, was, was born. Um, we, we keep in regular contact. She's very supportive and she's supportive of me and him because, I think she's one of the first people that I actually told about my autism and it was able to build, you know, a foundation of understanding between the both of us, even though we parent Ethan separately in our separate houses, she understands that I I am who I am and uh, is quite accommodating and, and kind to that. And for that, I'm, quite grateful and lucky that she has been understanding very much so, so far.
0: Um, how do you work the uh, custody arrangements?
1: Well, uh, Ethan would be here uh, plenty, He'd be here a couple of nights a week and my parents would collect him from school. They've taken early retirement because of um, their own health issues and so on. So they are happy to babysit him during the day while we both work. and. Yeah, I can I can see him anytime if he wants to come over he can. Um, because he loves getting caught up in all the the excitement with the book and speaking to new people. So she very much enjoys the journey that we're both on as well.
0: That's great. How old is Ethan now?
1: He's 6. He was 6 uh, on the 23rd of July.
0: Great. It's a great great age. Um How can our audience here at Different Brains get in touch with you or learn more about you?
1: Well, I love speaking to new people. I have an email address, which is judemorrowbooks at gmail.com. I am on Twitter at judemorrow10. I have my own author page on Facebook, which is just judemorrowauthor. I have my own website at www.judemorrow.com which I release, I try to at at least uh, release a two-weekly blog uh, about different things that matter to me, about autism and things that I feel. um, And just my thoughts, just opening up discussion within the autism community in general. And on Instagram, I'm at Jude Morrow as well. So I I love getting messages. I love discussing my, my book with people. Here it is. And it's, it's, it's really been, it's really been a great journey and I am more than happy to speak to anyone and everyone about my story. And I love hearing other people's stories just as much. And my so-called digital door is open to everyone.
0: That's great. That's great. Why is daddy so sad? Um, Jude, what, What is the biggest misconception about autism from your point of view, would you say?
1: My biggest misconception about autism is that it's a disease or a disorder or it's nearly like a condition. I, I believe that autism is a difference that has to be celebrated. I love the idea of neurodiversity. I like that, people can have different preferences in terms of whether it be uh, food, sensory issues, sexuality, anything. And I think in the diversity of the, the global society, I think neurodiversity is a great thing. If you look back all through, all through the the history of the human race, uh, all the the leading people in their fields. For example, with movies, it's Stanley Kubrick. With art, it's Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Mozart, um, Einstein. All have, w- with a certain degree of certainty, a diagnosis of autism, whether it be you know, posthumous diagnoses of autism. And I think that autism is a gift uh, instead of a curse. And I think the sooner people realize that you no, know, autism is a gift. I think acceptance and understanding will grow a lot more because with autism, I believe in and in, in and in a, in a general sense, and I know this is hypothetical. there's i'm I'm not one for pseudoscience, but I'm one for uh, you know thinking you know in a certain way. and I believe that people are born with a perhaps like a like an automatic safety net in their brain um whether that's a control for audio for visual for taste for touch uh, for social interaction there's that safety net that's automatically built into the brain and with autism we don't have that so we see the world in true color and uh, we hear it and the you know the crisp sound that it is and I think we because of the logical way that my brain works I think I can see the world for what it is and as far as having autism is concerned i believe that we're the enlightened ones
0: autism seeing the world without filters
1: yeah and sometimes it's maybe more beautiful sometimes it's maybe a lot more ugly i don't know but uh, i can't swap my brain with someone else's but even if i were given the choice i don't think i would
0: is there anything else you would like to share with our different brains audience that we might not have covered here?
1: there's There's something that's been troubling me quite recently, and it goes back to the the autistic way of of taking things literally. I would take things literally, and a lot of social interactions. And I've noticed, a, a, you know, like a global campaign. I think it's centered more towards mental health. Although with autism, we, we uh, there are, there is going to be overlaps somewhere uh, and psychiatric guidelines. And I don't know if the slogan "It's okay not to be okay" is prevalent in America. Is it or Canada? Yeah, there's there's a big emphasis here. Um, for mental health saying it's okay not to be okay and I'd, that that turn of phrase tr- as an autistic person troubles me somewhat because whenever i realized i was different i knew that i was feeling bad i certainly wasn't happy um, you know distinguishing distinguishing emotions is very difficult at the best of times but whenever i was having that awful black Sickening feeling in the pit of my stomach, and reading slogans like "It's okay not to be okay." I would take I took that literally and thought, "Well, it's uh, it's that that's great. Uh, I'm not okay. That's a good thing." And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, "Is it really okay not to be okay? If you're not okay, should you not seek professional help?" Um, because and all my research and googling and reading, I've never found slogans such as "It's okay to have a broken leg" or "It's okay to have yellow fever." You know, I've, 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 I've never found things like that. So, I think my ultimate—I uh, kind of wish I had this as a pearl of wisdom whenever you asked it, but I'll, I'll keep it here at the end. Is that it's much better to seek help, seek professional help. There is help and guidance out there for improving your mood and well-being.
0: Jude Morrow, author of Amazon's bestseller, Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad? Coming to us at Different Brains all the way from Ireland. And we really appreciate you taking the time, Jude, to be with us.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me any time at all.
0: Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.